0: Roger Citron, and I'm a professor of law at Toro University uh, Jacob D. Fukesburg Law Center. I'm here today with my colleague, Professor Ted Silver. And we're here today courtesy of the Toro Law Review. Uh, this will be a pod des- podcast discussion about uh, a subject, two words really, that strike fear in the heart of law students. Um, and those two words are secured transactions. And so uh, Professor Silver teaches the course Secured Transactions. And uh, before we jump into our topic today, uh, Professor Silver, please tell us a little bit about, about yourself. About
1: myself. Well, I too am a professor at uh, Turo University, Jacob E. Fuchsburg Law Center. And uh, naturally that means I'm a lawyer admitted to the bar, I think in 1977 or so. Uh, I also am a physician. I uh, graduated from medical school some years after that. Uh, And uh, apart from teaching uh, law, which is my first love, I am uh, a writer of a great number of books concerning standardized test preparation and uh, maybe you've all heard of the Princeton Review I created and uh, owned until recently. It's a MCAT preparatory course. I write for the LSAT exam and for the ACT exam. But again, my primary focus is uh, teaching law at our law school. And my uh, interests are medical practice and malpractice law, contracts, UCC article two and uh, Article Nine, which is a, which gives rise to the phrase "secured transactions." Now, yeah. let me. Well, go ahead, Roger. Go ahead. No, please go ahead. I was just. Well, you mentioned point. that the, the two words "secured transactions" strike fear into the hearts of women and men, and that's only because that that's a part of the broader principle that uh, fear is born of ignorance. So, the two words "secured transactions" are are not often heard together, except in this context. And so in order to, although I don't see fear on their faces. And again, those are those who have signed up for the course. I don't know how much fear there is among the students who have not signed up for the course. But in any case, uh, I begin by explaining to the students that There's an analogy between the subject known as secured transactions and the subject they've already addressed as first or second year students, which is mortgages. And I remind them of what they know, a little bit of what they know, that a mortgage is a legal device that affords a creditor, a lender, I even introduced the word creditor, a creditor, Uh, a security, that he has security, that he has collateral to which he or he or she can resort in the event of default. And I then, and there I get nodded heads to that, yes, of course, they know that, they remember it. Although I must tell you, Roger, one of the things they either never quite learned or uh, have forgotten is that there is no such thing as a borrower getting a mortgage. We hear people say, well, I'm looking to buy a house. I have to get a mortgage. No, you mean you wanna give a mortgage. You wanna convey a mortgage. And those who say get a mortgage really mean they wish to secure a mortgage loan. Uh, And the expression get a mortgage is inappropriate from the borrower's point of view. And and you'd be surprised, but they knew this at one point, I assume, but they they forget it. And especially that which is learned in the first year is most easily forgotten because it's not fully understood then. Uh, so I explained to them who is the mortgage or who is the mortgagee, and it's gratifying even to see an understanding on their faces well when I tell them that. But in any case, to get back to what I was saying, is I explained to them that the subject of secured transactions is, in an important way, analogous to the subject of mortgages. And in fact, what is now called a security interest under Article 9 was once called a chattel mortgage under something called the Uniform Chattel Mortgage Act which became in um, you know, a genera- generation after its inauguration, Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code. Anyway, I still haven't made my point, which is that the subject of secured transactions, which gives birth to something called a security interest, is analogous to the subject of mortgages. A security interest is kind of like a mortgage, except that the collateral is not real estate, but personal property. And I have to then point out briefly what we mean by personal property, all of which they knew at one point, but they need to be reminded. And I point out also, and this is my my view anyway, the reason that the subject of secure transactions, hold on a second, please. The reason that the subject of secure transactions differs from the subject of mortgages and is more complicated than it, is that real estate, which is subject to mortgages, cannot be moved or altered. I mean, it can be improved, but the land cannot be altered. The creditor will always know where the land is and what it is, uh, whereas personal property, such as steel in the General Motors factories uh, or leather in a shoe factory can be moved, can be incorporated into other goods, can become unrecognizable, can be sold, can be lost, uh, and that makes really, in my, to my mind, I don't think I've ever read it exactly, but to my mind, that is the fundamental difference between a security interest, which Article 9 creates, and a real estate mortgage. Personal property can be moved, and anyone who has a, what we call a car loan, which means really that the party has borrowed money and given away a security interest in her car, uh, realizes that she can move her car. And if the creditor suffers default, how will he find the car? And what's the answer to that? Well, it's all in the, the law of secure transactions. Sorry. Now, do you think that do you think that would allay the fears of students who find the two words fearful?
0: I do, and when I made the introduction to which you were responding to, uh, I have to tell you that uh, my experience at Toro uh, came, part of my experience here was I was the academic dean responsible for doing the schedule during the time when- um, The only one I should hold responsible for the schedule back then? From 2004 to okay. 2014 to 2018, you have a case. Okay, After okay. that, you, you don't have the right guy. Or well, it's water under the bridge, go ahead. Um, you may recall that during that time, New York shifted from its own bar exam to the uniform bar exam. And yep. what that did, of course, was to make on the essay day, one of the days uh, of the under, under the uniform bar exam that secured transactions could be. It was now in effect a required subject that yep. could be tested. No guarantee, but it, it was a, it was a subject that could be tested on the It's essay tested about two, two out of every three administrations, I think. Yes. Yes, and um, uh, and what that led to from my really complete bureaucratic perspective was extraordinary student demand for the Secured Transactions class. And um, I don't suppose that had anything to do with me. It couldn't be that I was
1: any good at teaching.
0: But you couldn't teach three sections. <laughs> <laughs> including two in the day and one at the night and one in the evening, which is what we wound up, I believe, offering as part of this. You know, as part of you know, making sure that students felt they were they could be adequately prepared for secured transactions. The contrast, of course, was in the days before New York's adoption of the Uniform Bar Exam. Uh, sometimes you would get say six to eight students in the part-time program in the evening taking the course. Sometimes it went, sometimes it didn't go. But, um, and so, uh, I I have no doubt that, you know, a substantial amount of the enrollment was driven by your teaching abilities. But I also think that the, the, the fear that I referred to in my opening remarks, um, uh, was what led people to, to, you know, led students to say, uh, I have to be able to take this course before I graduate. Um, and yet, as we're, you know, even as you've told me sort of, you know, some of the things you say to introduce the subject on the first day, um, what you say, you know, clearly makes sense and is clearly can be tied to things that are discussed in the first year curriculum. So uh, uh, what else do you tell your students on the first well, day or in the first week to, to you know, well, ease I them back them into, into these subjects? Or even right. into the subjects?
1: After I provide them with that little introduction, um, you know, which takes, by the time they ask a few questions, 15 minutes or so, I then tell them that we're not going to discuss secure transactions for probably two weeks because there's a good deal of background information uh, that, that they, of which they need to be possessed uh, in order for secure transactions to make any sense, in order for to give it a context which means that I discuss for the very first, No, I guess after I provide the introduction that I just told you about, I introduce the notion of a lien, L-I-E-N. And we tend to assume that, well, you're a second or third year law student, you must know what is a lien. And what they do know is they've heard of the word. but it doesn't mean they really know what it is. Can they define it? And no no student that I've asked can actually define lien and no one's ever asked them to define lien. So I offer them my definition of a lien, uh, which is a lien is a creditor's interest in one or more articles of his debtors, real or personal property, which if the debtor should default on his obligations, affords the creditor a right to seize and sell the liened property for satisfaction of the debt owed according to an order of priority that the law prescribes among competing lien holders uh, who have liens in the very same property. Okay, that's a lot of words and they busily scribble it down. And then I tell them I don't expect you to understand any of that. Each word, maybe you know, but put all together, I don't expect you to understand it. So let's breathe life into it. And I then expose them to really four principal forms of lien, leaving out Article Nine security interest because that's the lien that the whole course is about. Uh, but I remind them first of all that they already know of one kind of lien, a real estate mortgage. And then I tell them of liens they really don't know about and then no reason they should unless they had taken some other course called creditor's rights, which in, ter- which in turn would involve article nine. So I tell them of the judicial lien, the levy, what's called a statutory lien, which also goes by the name common law lien, which all goes by the name possessory lien, uh, of which there are diverse forms, but I explained to them, for example, if uh, one stores his property in one of the self-storage you store at Cabanas, Uh, the self-storage enterprise right away has a lien in your property. And it's called today, mostly a statutory lien because these were common law liens, but in all States they've been codified in the statute. Uh, And that believe it or not, if you default on the rent you owe to the self-storage service, It has the right, without involving a court, it has to give notice and tell you in a newspaper advertisement, but it has a right to seize the property and sell it at auction, which it does. Uh, And there are many forms of statutory liens, for instance, a a parking garage. Let's say you park your car in in a commercial garage and don't pay the fare at the end of the night, $40 or whatever it is. They don't have to release your car to you until you pay it. And if you don't pay the next many days, they can sell your car. So those are liens the students haven't heard of. And uh, let's see, what did I just mention? I mentioned traditional liens, levies, statutory liens. Well, there's the pre judgment liens, which are, they're now subject to constitutional restraints, but I... I describe that to them. I describe relatively briefly the manner of executing on a a levy, uh, what it means to garnish, what it means to, quote, freeze a bank account. But I give them number of pages of writing. I have an appendix to my own course companion that describes that in great detail. Then we've discussed leads. That takes a class or two. Thereafter, I introduce them to the all-important distinction in my mind between a secured creditor and an unsecured creditor. And I tell them simply, an un- a secured creditor is a creditor who holds a lien in his debtor's property and an unsecured creditor is one who does not. And that we all, when we lend $10 to a friend, are unsecured creditors. Uh, and uh, most, most debts are unsecured debts, and creditors are unsecured creditors. And then, in order to illustrate the significance of that difference, and there can be no more important distinction in all the law of creditors' rights than that between a secured and unsecured creditor. And in order to illustrate the distinction, the significance of it, and at the same time to introduce an important subject of itself, I go through the rudiments of uh, Chapter 7 bankruptcy and demonstrate particularly the difference in the way secured versus unsecured creditors are treated in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Naturally, I feel obliged to allude also to Chapters 11, 12, and 13, uh, but I only touch on them. Uh, the Chapter 7 uh, is, good, is a good means through which to explain the this distinction in treatment between secured and unsecured creditors. And they find it interesting, apparently, from what I can see, to note that when a secured creditor's collateral is disposed of in bankruptcy, in one way or another, let's imagine the trustee sells it, that from the proceeds, the secured creditor is entitled only to, well, I should say, of the amount of the debt owed the secured creditor, he's entitled to be paid as a preference the amount that comes forth from the sale of his collateral. That for the other, for whatever amount he is then still owed, he becomes an unsecured creditor. Secured creditors can become unsecured creditors uh, if if the value of their collateral is exhausted on foreclosure or in bankruptcy. And, this is eye-opening to them. First, the idea of secured versus unsecured predators is eye-opening. Then this becomes eye-opening as well. You look like you want to make a comment, ask a question, make uh, ask a query, have a commendation, uh,
0: <laughs> criticism, comment, or the like. I certainly have one of those. Let's see where it goes. Um, so again, from my experience with, with the schedule, um, do you, do you have in mind for your students, uh, the idea of the course is really aimed at the bar exam and what may show up on the uniform bar exam, or, but it might not be an or, it might be an and, thinking about what their life might be like as, as a practicing attorney, when they, especially if they are in, you know, in some kind of commercial or private practice, where you know borrowing is, you know, as it turns out, it, it, it happens all around us. It happens, you know, it, it's part of everyday life. And that's true whether you're representing individuals um, or representing you know, businesses or entities. So that's the the first question I wanted to ask. Um, and I the, the premise for it was in my experience uh, again as an administrator, Contrasting the approach taken, for example, by over the years we've had different adjuncts teach the course, compared to, for example, um, one time we had the course you know offered I think online, uh, and it was very clear that that course being taught by um, you know a, a a tenured professor at another law school with students enrolling in that course and taking it online was very much Geared towards the bar exam, and you and you know you would read the student evaluations and see what was covered in the syllabi and so on, and you would see that these were two overlapping but certainly not identical courses. Um, and so that you say oh, one overlap that one overlapped with which one? In other words, You're saying that the way the adjunct taught it, the way yes. you know, someone from teaching it for the bar exam, those two, those the coverage overlapped. and yet from what was you know discussed um, I think even what was tested um, the courses were similar but not but not identical and so in my mind or in my experience I thought uh, as there is with any subject there's a number of ways to teach it but what I'm really sort of was really attuned to uh, in my experience was you know that the line divides or can be divided by are you preparing you know is it a bar course in the sense of the end game is, You'll be ready for any essay question they ask. They ask on the on the bar exam, or you know, is it uh, after you leave law school and pass the bar exam and you're practicing? These are the kind of situations you may encounter, um, you know, in, in in private practice and dealing with whether you're representing you know borrowers or creditors. So also, well, you're pointing to the difference between real life and the bar exam, the
1: two days of the bar exam, or. Yeah. Uh, or some, some people would say real life versus law school. Uh, I First of all, the teaching text for my course is what I call a, my course companion. I don't have the students buy anything. And all provisions of Article 9 that, to which I refer, I set forth in the course companion itself. And the course companion is replete with user-friendly teaching materials. Uh, I think anyone who reads it would agree they're user-friendly. Uh, drills and questions and problems and exercises, and also at the appropriate points, in view of what's just been taught, every single authentically released bar exam essay problem uh, at strategic points. So that the student, and I use, by the way, I take the the, uh, National Conference of Bar Examiners syllabus that they publish for secure transactions, and that is my syllabus, although not in the same order as the NBEX as the presents it. But every subject that they address on their syllabus, which they, by the way, do not test all of them, but every subject addressed on their syllabus is addressed in mine and, and in my course companion, unit by unit. Now to get to the, so I'm answering part of your question. I definitely look at it as a bar preparation course particularly because as you said, the enrollment is high now because it's a bar exam. Of course, so I want this to give the students what they really have asked for implicitly by enrolling in the course. And uh, the the syllabus that the bar exam, that the bar folks offer is quite comprehensive. Uh, Now I do make distinctions Uh, as necessary between what really goes on in the commercial world of lending and borrowing and what Article 9 provides and the ways in which the bar exam tests it. For example, you didn't ask for an example. Would you like one? Yes, I would. Okay. So there is such a creature created by Article 9, and you've heard the phrase certainly, as a purchase money security interest, or at least you've heard the phrase purchase money mortgage, which actually means something different. But a purchase money security interest, I I can tell you how I describe that. A creditor acquires a purchase money security interest when with the loan monies he advances to his debtor, the debtor purchases the very property in which the creditor then takes its security interest okay so you buy something on time with that star expression buy it on time that means that some lender has loaned you the money to purchase the thing and then taken a security interest in that very thing that you purchased with the lender's money lender's loan money that gives rise to a purchase money security interest now the bar exam writers whenever they wish to have the student recognize a purchase money security interest, and then the significance of it, because there are certain special rules that apply to purchase money security interests as opposed to plain ordinary security interests. When the bar writers want the student, when they test the student to see if she can recognize a purchase money security interest, invariably, invariably, which means always, uh, (laughs) they set the problem up this way. Party X buys a something and the purchaser allows Party X to buy it on credit and takes a security interest, they don't even say that, and takes a signed security agreement from the buyer that conveys to the seller a security interest in the good he has just purchased. And the bar writers want you first to see, well, that's a purchase money security interest. But the truth is in commercial lending, Even in consumer good commercial lending, if one buys a refrigerator at an appliance store and is given the option to pay over 36 months, it is not the appliance store that lends the money. There's a finance company which lends the money to the buyer. The buyer never quite realizes that. The the finance company pays the appliance store and the appliance store is then out of it. Uh, The the finance company takes a security interest in the very item that the buyer has just bought. The buyer is now a debtor. And that is a purchase money security interest because the finance company, whichever one it is, has loaned the buyer the monies to buy the refrigerator and then taken a security interest in the refrigerator. And that's how it really happens. Uh, And I like to remind the students of that. And I present them with what these security agreements and loan agreements look like in you know, two-point type, yellow print on yellow paper, so that nobody's gonna read it. And the purchaser just knows, as we all do, oh, we sign, we sign, with, where, the, where the X is marked for us to sign. Uh, but then I'd like them to see what it is the buyer really is agreeing to, whether he knows it or not, generally not. Uh, and yes, that's a difference in the real world versus the bar exam world. It surprises me, actually, that the bar writers don't test purchase money security, the, the knowledge of a purchase money security interest in a realistic context, but they don't. And I advise the students that they don't. And then I prove it to them that they don't, because look, here's a bar exam essay problem in which you are to recognize that some, that the that the seller of a good has taken a purchase money security interest in it, but that is not how it would really happen. So, so now, but I do teach, just one one more, I really do teach 80% to the bar exam. Uh, And again, as I said, there are something like 25 authentically released bar exam, UBE secure secure transactions essays, And all of them appear at different points in my course companion. And so now we've learned this, 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 and this. Now let's answer this question. And that I think the students find reassuring because they can answer it very easily. Since we've just learned the material that
0: tests, it seems easy to answer. And while I've never taught the secured Transactions course, um, I have had some experience teaching um, a writing course for the bar exam in which we did three weeks or so on the secured Transactions unit. And my sense, and for me, there was roughly, this is a very rough comparison, but I felt like it, it, at least it, it worked for me it was a little bit like administrative law when I would say to students, look, it seems overwhelming at the beginning because there's a lot of terminology and the pieces interlock. But if you stay with it, if you stay with it, I'm telling you by about halfway to two-thirds of the way through the course, the pieces fit together. And then, you know, it is a, it is a subject that um, you really have to, you know, to go uphill at a fairly it's a fairly steep uphill climb, but then it's a contained or circumscribed world, if you will. That is, it's it's a manageable, it's a coverable world. And then the pieces fit together. Um, and I say that, you know, from my limited experience teaching secure transactions, where we were just doing a piece of the course, but I was, that was my sense of, you know, at least the, the material for the bar exam. And I've had that similar experience of students in administrative law, especially, for example, in administrative law. If you start with the con law separation of powers material, which can be kind of frustrating, and saying, "But stay with it, you'll see that," you know, eight weeks in or so, um, it's just a matter of fitting all the pieces that we've now covered together. And I wonder if that accords with or comports with the experience you have. Um, teaching the course, or 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 and, you know, and working with the students as you go through the semester. Well, for the first
1: five weeks of the semester, I think that what you're saying is true. The concepts seem a little strange. Although I must say, by analogi- by analogizing the security interest to a real estate mortgage, uh, the students seem to have an easier time understanding And by the I'll say, let me interrupt my own thought. A great, it is so of a great many subjects in law that fundamental principles are fairly easy to understand. There are always issues, cases that fall between the cracks, of course, but the fundamental, uh, the fundamentals of a, of a given subject are not all that difficult to uh, apprehend. It's the, it's the tons and tons and tons of ifs, ands, or buts, the exceptions, the rule is usually this, but here's the exception. The exceptions often swallow up the rule. Um, and by the time we're into the fifth or sixth week of the course, we begin to speak about all the things that are so within Article 9 that you wouldn't have thought so based, up to, uh, based on what we learned up through uh, five. And the first of those concerns a purchase money security interest. Purchase money security interests in uh, a business's equipment, in its inventory, uh, in farm products are uh, treated differently from the way other security interests are treated, and when I say differently, I mean differently in terms of priorities. Mostly, secured transactions is about priorities among creditors, priorities among two creditors who hold security interests in the same collateral, priorities between uh, secured uh, Article Nine creditors with a security interest versus uh, a judicial lien holder who has a judicial lien in all of the given defendants or debtors' personal property. Most of it is about priorities. And the exceptions to the rules also affect priorities. And it kind of begins to turn some students upside down. I thought, well, this was the case. Well, you thought so, but now I'm telling you it isn't. Uh, And then the, uh, the complications of commingled goods, for instance, One creditor takes a security interest in the Coke syrup located in a Coca-Cola distribution uh, establishment. Another secured party, another Article 9 creditor, takes a security interest in the seltzer. And here we have two creditors with two separate security interests. They don't hold security interests in the same collateral. They're They're not even potential competitors in the case of default, except that the syrup and the seltzer are then combined uh, into what article Nine uh, described as a co-mingled good. Well, then it becomes a little more complicated. Who has a security interest in what? Uh, if this distribution company defaults, how do we know who has it? And we sell all the Coca-Cola, who gets how much of it? And then there's the, the notion of accessions. Uh, take a security interest in a great big manufacturing machine uh, and one major component of it is taken out and replaced. But some Article 9 creditor had a security interest in that component before it was put into the larger machine. And the first creditor has a security interest in the entirety of the machine. So I start by analogizing it too. Suppose the collateral is a bicycle. So some creditor takes a security interest in my bicycle. And then while I'm still paying off the debt, uh, so that the creditor still holds the security interest in my bicycle, I take the seat off the bicycle and give it and put in a new seat. Does it apply to that seat? Does it not apply to that seat? If the seat were sitting in my garage and I borrowed money on the seat before I put it onto the bicycle, not the fact it never happened on such a small scale, but that's the principle involved. And those things, those things are what bother the students. They bother me, so they're gonna they bother the students as well. Uh, now, now what answer, question was I answering? <laughs> I was answering the question of whether, if the student is patient uh, about the initial pieces of which he learns, do they fit together and come to mean something? And my answer to that actually is yes. My answer is yes, it does happen that way. Things that seem foreign and seem arcane uh, do come together. And, and you hear that, I'm sure you hear it, obviously, you must hear it in your own courses, when the students start to ask questions that, they could never have imagined asking or knowing how to ask or had any reason to ask. And suddenly they're using the correct language. And this and the question is conceptual is conceptually sound in terms of its premises. That's always
0: a pleasure. And t- I totally agree. Um, and part of it, I think, again, this was from my sort of glimpse of secured transactions from that those couple of years that I was doing the, the bar exam writing course, was that. There's a conceptual piece and there's a vocabulary piece or a terminology piece. And in fact, um, not only you know, uh, are they, you know, if you will, specific and you know to the subject matter, but there's a real precision that's required. That is, you really have to understand the significance of the terminology as well as the significance of the procedures required to fit into like a certain category. I mean, you were talking about the difference between being secured and and unsecured um, as a creditor, but there's even more from my recollection. Well, there's a distinction between a security interest that is
1: perfected and a security interest that is unperfected. Uh, And there are various ways of perfecting a security interest. One set of ways, if the collateral is tangible personal property another set of ways if the collateral is intangible personal property uh and and there are separate by under article 9 there are separate categories of intangible personal property accounts receivable although article 9 falls on accounts for some reason accounts uh investment investments well not secure investment properties they call it Um, just some The list escapes me now, but there are like five categories of intangible personal property that Article 9 recognizes and different mo- oh, bank accounts, which they call deposit accounts for some reason. Um, there are different modes of perfecting those security interests. Uh, but it all comes out to the, the final, the outcome that is significant is priority who will have priority as between two different creditors or claimants as for the same property. To me, almost the entire course is about priority and everything else is detail. Uh, detail that I teach, of course, but it's really detail. And what surprises me is that other writers in the, in the field, uh, the treatises and especially the, the review books for law students, they come to priorities somewhere like chapter 12 or 13 or 18 priorities and everything before that is how to, how to create a security interest, how to perfect a security interest, what is a security interest, um, all of which has no real meaning to me uh, until you, you see what it all means in terms of priorities. If you and I hold security interests in the same collateral and we both suffer default and the foreclosure sale is, uh, is conducted Which of us has first priority in the monies that come forth? That's what it's all about, really. And there's one other subtopic that I think is significant, the process of foreclosure. What are the rights of the foreclosing creditor? What are the obligations of the foreclosing creditor? Uh, That's important because uh, if a foreclosing creditor should fail to abide by some of his or her or its obligations, there are rather severe consequences for the creditor. Uh, but I guess I can say, it never occurred to me to say it quite this way, but to me, the, the guts of a secured transactions, course, uh, are the law of priorities, which is fairly complex, depending on what is the collateral, what kind of security interest is held, is it purchase money or is it not, is the interest perfected or is it not? And then, uh, well, should, should the secured party, that means the Article 9 creditor, suffer in default? what exactly are her or his obligations before selling the collateral, and sometimes he can sell it to himself, selling the collateral uh, and dispersing the proceeds. Those are the interesting components of it anyway. Uh And it's only only those components that make the whole thing significant. For example, well, all right, I'll just give you
0: one.
1: there's a unit in, the, in a typical secured transactions course or textbook, there's a unit on the correctly filing a financing statement. What should be in the financing statement? What doesn't have to be in it, but should be in it? And what are the consequences of making an error in the financing statement? And to me, that is, there's not much to it. Uh, and it's not especially interesting, it's not conceptual. Yet the bar examiners will test it. Uh, you never know what they're what they're going to test at any given time so I, I think they've they've tested everything they can now so it's a matter of just repeating what they test and with some different stories attached to it uh, but that that to me is an important point the course is really about priorities and foreclosure and the rest of it is trimmings not that the examiners look at it that way but that's what i say um, and you were going to say something i think
0: yes well i think as long as we 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 haven't left out um, anything that you wanted to talk about in connection with how you teach secured transactions, um, I have two questions, and then I, I, I think we can you know adjourn. Well, I'm um, going to miss you, but go ahead. <laughs> There's a faculty meeting on Friday. I will see you soon. Um, but the, uh, I'd rather see you. I'd rather
1: see you in some other venue. But go ahead.
0: <laughs> the first question. Um, is, so I'll ask the, uh, the first question is, what as you were talking about the fact that, you know, there's all this detail with respect to um, what has to be covered in terms of the types of exceptions and so on, do you think on the bar exam that it should be a closed book exam if they ask a security transactions question should it be tested in a as a closed book question or a closed book exam setting and the reason why i ask is civil procedure of course is a very rule-based course you know the students have to come with the rule book to class and um, even on exams i occasionally will give them you know a, a one of the longer rules. For example, if I test on service of process, which is so sort of practice focused, rule four has, I think you go 4A through about 4M or N. Um, And I I, I reason to myself, there's no way a student should have to memorize rule four. Um, Nonetheless, I also tell the students, there are certain rule four questions you will see in the multiple choice questions, you know, on the MBE day, um, and so there are certain aspects of the rule that you are required to memorize. Um, here's the point of that that, that long-winded introduction. What, what's the best way to test secured transactions material, open or closed book? And what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, what I think about that, uh, I would apply to every subject within within the law. Law practice is open book. So uh, if I had my way, so would so would all tests be open book. Uh, the importance of learning law, whatever precisely those two words mean, is not the memorization of doctrine. Yes, there is. Some, mem- some doctrine has to be second nature. There's no question that one, one who practices law ought not have to research uh, the meaning of offer or acceptance or, or, or that contracts fall for an offer and acceptance or that there's such a thing as service of process. But beyond, the, beyond what I would call anyway the fundamentals, details can be researched and there's not much of a reason to memorize anything that can be looked up. I was taught that in medical school. Don't memorize anything that you can look up don't memorize how many milligrams of uh, amoxicillin to give for this or that condition. If you can look it up in a book, don't don't uh, don't crowd your memory with that. Uh, and I, I tend to believe that. So uh, now it's also, well, no, I'll stop there. I, I do believe that it's never going to happen, but that's what I believe. I don't think it's ever going to happen. A student would have to come to a test with this many books, even though we don't use books anymore much. So with this many websites, uh, but I think that that, I think the bar, I take your question to mean really, to what extent does the bar exam test one's readiness to practice law? And uh, I think it tests one's abilities conventionally as a student, but I don't know that it tests one's creativity in law to, to conjure a position on behalf of a client that's not written anywhere, but that I pull together from this source and that source. Oh, I'm going to argue that it's a, uh, it's really a security interest, not a judicial need. Uh, so that's my long-winded answer to what you said was a long-winded question. We're
0: even. Um, and then here's the, the last question. Um, why do you enjoy teaching secure transactions? Why do
1: I, first of all, you're right that I do enjoy it. Uh, I do enjoy it. I think I, I'm gonna give you an answer that I don't wanna be held to. But I think the reason is that the subject matter is initially foreign to the students. And as I see them understanding it and getting into it and feeling it and using the vocabulary, well, they use the vocabulary because they understand what the words mean. Uh, that's, uh, that's gratifying to me, it's gratifying. And, and particularly because I write all my own teaching materials for anything I teach I like to see them learning not only from me through my for what I say, but through what I've written.
0: All right. I uh, w- w- is there anything you'd like to conclude with um, here? Because thing that comes to mind at the moment. But I'll get back to you if I if I think of anything. And should you do that, we'll turn the camera back on. But for now, we're going to adjourn. Um, okay. Ed Silver, thank you so much. Thank you, Roger. It's really been nice.